Good morning and welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I am Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. It is day 622 of our three-year journey through the Word of God. We are in the book of Ezra, part one of the two-volume book, really, of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're here in Ezra chapter 3, where Ezra will lead the people in rebuilding the altar of God under, uh, with the help of Jeshua, who is the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who is the governor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church, where you dwell in your gracious presence by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that the church is the manifestation of your living temple on earth, your kingdom. We are privileged to be a part of it. We pray that you would bless our time together this morning as we are in your word, that you would teach us and grow us and lead us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them, because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, and the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, 
because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many also shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. Well, I guess we can tell this was not a Presbyterian church gathering because the sound of it was heard from far away and there was a loud shouting and crying for joy and sorrow. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, Ezra 3 tells us of an important step in the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, this is going to be put on pause for a while so that, you know, first the altar gets built and they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, they start offering up these burnt offerings. They realize, well, all we have here is an altar. We don't even have a foundation for the temple itself. We're here to build a temple. And so then they, they get to work building the temple. Uh, well, the foundation, at least. And they're going to get the foundation laid. And it's going to be a while before the work resumes and the temple itself is finished. This is the second temple. Um, and so there was the first temple, which was built under Solomon. And that stood from, you know, around... 1,950, uh, about 950 B.C., until it was completely destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. This temple is, uh, foundation is laid 70 years later, right around 517, 516, and then it's going to be finished later. But 70 years without a temple, as God had promised in his prophecy uh, through um, Ezekiel concerning the, the time and through Jeremiah concerning the time that the land would be uh, in, in rest and that the people would be in exile. And so they lay the foundation. The second temple then built, foundation laid in about 517, 516, and then built. It stands until Herod greatly expands the temple, Herod the Great, greatly expands the temple. So it's this same second temple that Jesus stands in, that the apostles preach in, uh, you know, and have the early church ministry in. And then that temple is destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And then the third temple is the church. We are the living temple. And so the foundation was laid here uh, by Tyrians and Sidonians lumber being sent from the far north because there's no big trees in Israel. We talked about that when we talked about the construction of the original temple. Why did they need to get the king of Tyre involved, Hiram king of Tyre? Because in Israel itself, there were no large trees, and still are no today, no large trees sufficient for building uh, strong buildings that would stand uh, and, and be suitable for like a temple. And so they send away and the temple foundation is laid. The, the new temple, the living temple, the, the, glor the glorious temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church, the chief cornerstone is Jesus himself. And the foundation, according to Ephesians 2.20, is laid in the apostles and prophets. They receive the revelation of the New Testament, 
which fulfills, completes, and authoritatively interprets the Old Testament so as to lay a foundation of the new and living temple. And then you and I are living stones that are being built up into that temple. And it is that temple, once it is complete, the completed third temple, that will be revealed from heaven as the glorified church, the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. So in this world, we don't see a temple. And even in the world to come, it's not going to exactly be a temple. It'll be, it'll be the, the church of Jesus Christ, the glorified and perfected and wonderful church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will live and have its resting place in the new heavens and the new earth, on the new earth, in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that <coughs> is what's being revealed. So what is the purpose of temple? Temple is for worship. Temple is for sacrifice. Temple is for the glory of God and the good of his people. That's what the church is to be doing. The church is to be centered on the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't come offering up animals every morning and evening. We don't have special feast days and festival days when we come and offer extra offerings because Jesus Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, is that once-for-all sacrifice that satisfies divine justice, that completely cleanses us forever from all of our sin, that completely appeases the wrath of God. But we do offer sacrifices but they're bloodless sacrifices. They are the sacrifices of our lives as we are living sacrifices, according to Romans 12, doing what is holy and acceptable to God in the light of God's mercies. We present ourselves as living sacrifices. And so that is one sacrifice. And the main kind of sacrifice the New Testament speaks of is us as being living sacrifices. That's a sacrifice of thanksgiving a sacrifice for those who have already had our sins atoned for. The sin offering, the trespass offering, the burnt offering, that's already been made through Jesus Christ. So we bring a thank offering of our lives. We also bring the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips giving thanks to his name, as Hebrews 13 tells us, is a sacrifice we bring. So is the church a place of sacrifice? Yes, it is both centrally in the church we proclaim the once-for-all finished blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, that nothing but the blood of Jesus can cleanse us of our sin. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's side. You know, we remember the old rugged cross. We sing about and celebrate and believe and proclaim and embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. We remember his death and his sacrifice for us when we take the Lord's Supper together as we, as we feed upon his body and blood together as his church by faith. And then we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and our praise, the fruit of our lips for those who are giving thanks to his name for what he has done for us. So the church is still centrally a place of, of sacrifice, of the cross and of our lives. And the purpose of it is still to glorify God, for God to meet with his people, to build us up in the faith and strengthen us, and to be a testimony in the sight of all the nations. You know, they were, they were afraid of the surrounding nations, and that's why they started offering up these sacrifices. We live in, in hostile land. We live in enemy territory. 
We are surrounded by unbelievers who do not love the Lord and who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we live in a world that is in rebellion against God. We have an enemy, Satan, who hounds us. We need to be encouraged, but we also need to send a testimony to the nations of the one true God who reigns. And that is done through the church. And so as missions go out into the world and people come to know the Lord, there should be church planting. Missions and church planting are really the same thing. As we are called to make disciples and Jesus has promised to build his church, we are called to do evangelism and missions. That is the planting of churches where the cross of Christ is central and we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices and God is uh, praised. We do see them offering up the sacrifice of praise here in verse 11 as they're led in this responsive singing by the sons of Asaph. Asaph was appointed to lead up singing when David had been king. Now it's, you know, 500 years later and the sons of Asaph are still in their office leading the singing. And this refrain, which is sort of the refrain uh, of the Psalms and of uh, the thanksgiving, uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love, his chesed, endures forever. And then what's this last part about? Why is it that some people are crying? Well, because some people remembered when they were children, they remembered the glorious temple of Solomon and how it was destroyed and burned with fire and completely decimated by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And now this is a beginning of a rebuilding, but right now it doesn't, it doesn't hold a candle compared to what had been there when Solomon had built his temple, which stood for hundreds of years. And so they're in mourning over what had been lost. They're in mourning over all that had been suffered by the people of God. And yet there was also the sound of the joyful shout mixed in with the people's weeping. Now, people have had various comments and, and observations about this. You know, some people have said, well, they shouldn't have been crying. They should have been trusting the Lord because don't despise the day of small beginnings. And then even though it was a humble start, it was a faithful start. And I think they knew that. I don't think they were despising the work that God was doing and the start that had been made. But, you know, there's a sense in which when we come in to worship, there is to be both weeping and shouting for joy. There is to be thanksgiving and there is to be mourning and there is to be joy. What do I mean by that? Well, when we come into the Lord, the fact that we're welcome to worship, the fact that we're able to gather, the fact that we're privileged to be his people and to offer him praise is grounds for thanksgiving. We should be thankful because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And yet, just as the Israelites, just as these returning exiles were experiencing, our sin is costly. And when we come into the presence of God, we're aware of our sin. And so we can look back with regret on the sin that we've been guilty of and the relationships that we've hurt and the opportunities that we've missed and the cost that that has been to us. And we can rightly mourn. And yet, as we are forgiven, as God gives us a chance to begin anew, as it were, every Sunday morning is a chance, a new week, a new clean slate forgiven by God. Of course, the blood of Jesus covers all of our sins and we're, we're called and commissioned and sent out to, to be disciples of Christ. There's a great joy to know 
we've been so forgiven and we have a, a new week now to enter into with all the past forgotten and washed away and all the present and future opportunities before us as those who are called by the Spirit of God to follow God. So, so in our worship service, right, we have the call to worship and we have the singing of songs of praise. But then we have a reading from Scripture that is designed to convict us so that we will confess our sin. And we do that in humility. And there's sorrow there. But then there is forgiveness and there is thanksgiving and there is joy. And so it is appropriate that the gathering of God's people at this stage of redemptive history, they would look back with sorrow on what their sin had cost the people of God, but also with joyful shouting because God had been so gracious to restore them and God's been gracious to us. So joy never, sorrow never has the final word. Joy always triumphs over sorrow, but the sorrow is there because sin is real and we cannot deny its disastrous effects. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us life in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the peace that we have with you. Thank you for the privilege of worship. We pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, in humility and love, in sorrow for sin, and in joyful uh, gratitude for the thanksgiving of the cross and the sacrifice that makes us holy before you and forgiven of all of our sins. Thank you for Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone of your temple and the center of our worship by the sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. That's Ezra chapter 3. You'll see on the screen Ezra 4. That's what we'll be doing tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that. And as always, I do hope you have a blessed day in the Lord.